The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Meaning to get you a shorter bio. <laughs> so um, it's really nice to be here with all of you again this morning. Can you hear okay? Is this on? Okay, good. Um, and this, these four weeks have flown by. I don't know if they've flown by for you, but they've certainly flown by for me. So uh, here we are at the end of the series. And um, what I wanted to end this series on is uh, the theme of equanimity, finding equanimity, and um, the way that um, self-acceptance expresses in this uh, field and quality of equanimity. So I thought that the best way to begin a talk like this is to, uh, you know, address the question of, uh, you know, really what is self-acceptance? What does it mean in the context of Buddhist practice and Buddhist meditation? So uh, when, when we begin to actually look into a question like that, what is self-acceptance, we begin to notice quickly that it's not actually about a self. Um, it's rather about the psychological behaviors that we take to be ourselves. Okay? So to develop self-acceptance in this context, we really need to know where we are, what's happening in our experience, in our direct experience, and what resources we have with us. So this means that it requires a kind of radical honesty about our strengths and our weaknesses, and um, this requires uh, basic mindfulness and clear comprehension, as well as a real commitment to living in integrity with our highest um, aspirations and our deepest intentions. So um, this radical honesty of our strengths and our weaknesses uh, is cultivated in this uh, quality of mindful and equanimous observation of our experience. And um, when we begin to do that, we begin to notice that there's familiar themes of thinking and emotions that come up in us all the time. And before I go on, I want to say that... um, there's only a couple of points that I want to make in this talk, and they can sound rather academic, but um, the actual experience of what I'm pointing to can be quite liberating. And, um, and for many people, and I, I think I would put myself in this category, one of the ways that we can find 
access to insight is through understanding something sort of intellectually, first grokking it in that way, and then allowing it to reveal itself in our experience. So I was thinking about this talk while, <laughs> while I was meditating, and I was realizing that the points that I'm about to make were, I wasn't quite getting them in my direct experience, you see? But, so having said that, then I'll point back to that as I go on here. So, as we begin to cultivate mindful, equanimous observation, we begin to see that, that these familiar thoughts and emotions arise. So, some people think about things that fall into the category of planning, and they do that over and over and over again. And other people think about the past, and they worry about the past, and so on and so forth. And these are themes that are, uh, that these are common themes that show up in people, and they're different for each of us. But what we begin to see is the momentum and the power of these mental inclinations and habits. And, um, and gradually, we begin to see them as like con- a conditioned response, or I should say conditioned activities, not a conditioned response. And... <clears throat> and as we begin to see that, as we begin to understand that, we see that these thoughts and these emotions and these familiar things that just keep coming up over and over again, that they're not really a self. They're not really who we are. They're not really our identity. They're not really an identity. They're a process of activities that are just arising and passing away. They're coming and they're going. So this is where I'm saying the understanding of that intellectually is completely different than the understanding of that experientially. And I'm not sure how one gets the experience of that, the direct experience of that, other than through patience and the willingness to consider that this is a possibility because we're so... Um, conditioned to find self in all of our experience. Every thought I have, I think, is my me. I mean, I know that it's not, but I think that it is at some level. So to pretend that I don't think that I, it, <laughs> that that's the case is not to be radically honest about what's going on, you see? So, all right. So, through wise investigation of thoughts and emotions, mental states, mindsets, and attitudes, which I talked about last week, instead of finding a self, a me, and all these thoughts, these thinking, the thinking, the planning, the worrying, the strategizing that goes on, we can begin to notice there's an 
the underlying conditioned activities, the process that's going on that we invest a sense of me into. This is how we create a sense of me. You see, we, we, we don't see the process of the activities. We think that it's us. We think that it's me. So this is helpful, actually, in an immediate and practical way because what it does is it gives us the ability to let go, to relinquish these habit-forming activities. And when we're able to do that, they don't become ingrained as mental formations in us. Does that make sense? When we can see what's going on, instead of like taking the ball and running, we, we can choose to relax around it. We can choose to not to fight it because it's, you know, it's like, what good does it do for me to pretend <laughs> that I don't think that my thoughts are me when, when I do think that my thoughts are me? You see, what good does that do? It doesn't do anything. So to just be with the truth of that allows the, uh, the deeper truth to reveal itself in its own time and in its own way. This is like a beginning of the expression of equ- equanimity, to be able to be with things as they truly are without resisting them, without pushing them away, without denying them, without attaching to them. This is also how you cultivate compassion, by the way, or one of the ways that you can cultivate compassion. So when we begin to use this, this wise investigation, we can see that what takes place in the thinking process is basically just a series of perceptions, like mental images that happen. So we have a thought, we see an image, then suddenly we're that image, we're involved in that story. We have feelings that arise, we like things, we don't like things, we're neutral or indifferent about things. This all comes up. Um, We begin to see the impulses that happen, the thinking that happens, the mental constructions that take place as activities, not as a self, as an abiding self. So these are just the activities of mind, and these activities are what hook us and where we get stuck. So has anyone ever had that experience? Anyone ever gotten stuck? This is how we get trapped. And it's so natural, it's so common that we miss it. It's so familiar that we miss it. And it's because it happens, it's part of our experience of common humanity. We see it happening to everyone else and we see. So it really takes kindness and patience 
and a willingness to just be with your experience as it is. So even if your experience is you're experiencing some sort of, or you think you are, like, like me, guilty as charged, I think I'm experiencing some sort of understanding on an intellectual level. And, and maybe what I'm experiencing on an experiential level isn't quite sinking, you see? That's, but that is the truth of the experience. And so to fight with that would create suffering, would create dukkha in my life. Or to accept that is a, it creates a little bit more space. So it's not about me here. I don't mean it like that, but just to, to use this as an example. So uh, whenever we can separate the actual activities, the, the judgments, the self-criticisms, and so on and so forth, from the images or the perceptions that actu- actually trigger the activities, and we begin to see things as they simply are, a process of arising and passing away. What we're doing actually at that point is cutting off at the source the fuel that feeds those activities because we're seeing what's really happening. See, And so maybe there's the intellectual seeing, but then there's also the direct experience of seeing it. And and there's some value in understanding something um, with discernment that leads to insight. So um, the act, when this happens, the activity itself begins to lose steam. It begins to sort of relax. And so the things that hook us and cause us problems and create this feeling of entrapment and stuckness, it begins to loosen. And we can, uh, we can just begin to relax. Are you with me? So this kind of wise attending allows us to rest in our awareness in a in a peaceful way rather than in an, a stressful way. It allows us to be with what we're aware of without fighting it. Yes? I'm looking for nods of recognition here. <laughs> okay. This kind of Attending this kind of wise attending also reveals to us in the process of doing this a multitude of afflicted and unnecessary psychological activities that generate suffering in us. So when we begin to look, we begin to see where we get fooled, what hooks us, what trips us up. You see? And when we begin to see that moving in certain directions, like I spoke about last week, there are mind states or mindsets that are wholesome and lead out of suffering, and there are other mind states and mindsets that 
trap us and lead into suffering. And so to simply know the difference, ah, this will take me to freedom and this will take me to misery. Which do I want to cultivate? But until we can see that, until we actually see it, we just, you know, it's the luck of the draw, so to speak. So as we begin to to try to cultivate this kind of wise investigation and wise attention to our experience and to our awareness of self, it allows us to be with things as they actually are. You know, so if in fact we find ourselves caught in some sort of overwhelming situation that is uncomfortable and stressful, you see, to deny that as part of our experience is, is problematic because it will cause us to suffer. So it's important to see how we suffer. And in that way, we can almost celebrate the discovery of what is causing us to have this kind of stress in our life. And this is what I'm referring to as afflicted or not unnecessary psychological states that lead us into suffering. So one of the ways that we can cultivate self-acceptance is by being open to and willing to sustain an awareness on the activities that are arising and passing away in our own life. So if we're given to self-criticism, if we're given to harsh self-judgments or um, we judge other people harshly and quickly and we feel a lot of guilt and aversion and all of those kinds of things, all of that painful activity, as we begin to see that and are able to be with that for um, periods of time rather than to just simply gloss over it or, or not see it at all, these things begin to release. So we've all heard the instruction that when we suffer, the way to deal with the suffering is to turn and look right at it, to be with it rather than to move away from it. And that's a pretty... um, (laughs) That seems very counterintuitive. But that's what I'm saying right here. This... Is this gives us the ability to be with our experience exactly as it is, without, without, in any way sugarcoating it or, or running away from it or hiding it, and when this happens, we begin to see that the activities which caused us to suffer they just naturally begin to loosen. It's almost like we don't have to do anything about it. We're always getting in and trying to do things about it, but through the, just the seeing of it, 
it allows things to begin to release and unplug. And this is how we, cult- this is again another way of cultivating compassion, to be able to see where we're, where we're suffering and not turn away from that suffering allows this quality of heart that can hold the truth of our experience and, and heal us in a way. Definitely heal us. So, <clears throat> this 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 takes a kind of stability and stillness of mind and heart um, that can respond with compassion. Let's let me just say it that way. That can respond with compassion to the flow of this process that's taking place. The thoughts, the emotions, the mind states, the opinions, the likes, the dislikes, and so on and so forth. We begin to see that, and, um, and we can hold all of that in a kind of stillness of heart, in a kind of Equanimity. That's exactly what it is. It's, it's this quality of equanimous, of being equanimous with the totality of our experience without turning away. And, and um, this stillness of heart feels spacious and non-reactive. It's not denying what's happening. It's just not being triggered by it any longer. So we can see, I always use anger. I don't know why I always use anger, because I'm not an angry person. (laughs) But it seems to work. We can see anger for anger without being lost in anger. And that's that's a dramatic and important difference and distinction to make. So we don't have to fight with anger when it arises. We just see it. And in the seeing, we know what has arisen. And without reacting to it, we can hold it in this field of equanimity. So equanimity doesn't mean indifference at all. It means clear seeing and, and inherent in equanimity is this quality of empathy. You see, it allows us to understand what's actually happening with kindness in a way. It's not indifferent. So um, if equanimity is absent in our experience, then it's very easy for us to just slip into reactivity, whether it's anger or irritability or lashing out or blaming or, you know, being one way or another like that. So it also allows us to deny and to sugarcoat our habits of mind, our habitual habits that lead us down the rabbit hole. 
These are confused states of mind. We don't, we don't even know what's going on. And <clears throat> so it, it's very easy to default there if we're not cultivating this quality of looking and seeing. All right? So <clears throat> I said a moment ago that equanimity uh, contains or retains this quality of empathy. It's not indifferent, uh, but it is absolutely unconditionally patient. So it sees what's happening and it doesn't need to be any different. So this is, this is an interesting place to be because I've had, not arguments, but I've had discussions with colleagues uh, who also teach this compassion program that I teach. And, you know, I believe... Well, let me say, there's this position that it's because of compassion that one can hold things with an equanimous, receptive heart. And then the other side says that it's because you have an equanimous, <laughs> accepting heart that compassion can flourish. So it's whether it's one or whether it's the other, they seem to happen simultaneously and and or they seem to go together that's for sure and and basically what i'm saying here is that no part of your experience is rejected there even the even what you might consider stressful and dark and your shadow side that is also part of the mix and it's seen and it's held with kindness. And you don't have to fight with it anymore. So <clears throat> if anger is there, it's recognized. It's just not fed. And in the recognition and the seeing of anger, you sort of cut it off at its source. You don't fuel it. You don't feed it any longer. The seeing and the knowing is what allows the release to happen. And, and this is an important point, okay? So um, whenever we can begin to practice this kind of self-acceptance in our meditations, um, we can be with, we can notice and, and actually be with our thoughts and our emotions with kindness, with empathy and compassion, rather than rejecting them with judgments or reactions of disapproval or approval. Make sense? When, when we have this ability, when we cultivate this ability, we can be kind to ourselves. We can actually be a good friend to ourselves. And <clears throat> and until we can be a good friend to ourselves like that, we're going to, most of us, I don't want to sound so cocky that I know everything, but most of us are going to default to these 
activities that are going on in our lives, thinking that's who we are, fooling ourselves, being confused, and it just goes on and on and on. It's just a proliferation of, of misunderstandings. So seeing the patterns of our thoughts and behaviors as they ebb and flow, as they come and go, as they you know, rise and fall, without being drawn in or, or overwhelmed by them, is really important. It allows us to witness what we normally take to be ourselves as a dynamic, basically, as I was saying, as a dynamic process of impulses and thoughts and reactions and new impulses and thoughts and reactions. It's, this actually allows us to see that. You see? So, so going back to what I said a little bit earlier when we were sitting quietly, I noticed, I recall that I was going to try to make this point in the talk. And then, then I noticed that as I was watching my impulses and my thoughts and my reactions and that, <clears throat> I saw it, but I didn't actually see that that wasn't me. You see? And it was so interesting. So this is, there's the understanding of this and the seeing of that through that kind of understanding. And then there's the patience that are, is needed in order to allow that understanding to take root and to flower in fruit. So <clears throat> rather than fight with the truth of that, it's important to see that because the seeing allows the patience to, to, you know, to take, to be expressed and, and to give, it takes you off the hook in a way. Then you don't have to fight with, oh, I don't get this, something's wrong with me, or then you just default to a whole series of unproductive um, reactions. So these thoughts and, and reactions are really the causes and conditions of our life. And in a way, that's what karma is. It's just these causes and conditions that keep arising and, and leading to one thing leads to another. So <clears throat> what, they, what these causes and conditions do that result in this process is that they create the impression that there's an abiding self somewhere in there in these in in this experience there's an abiding self so that's what i was saying i was i was watching my impulses and my thoughts and my reactions and new impulses and somewhere in that 
there was this sense that there was a self in there, you see? And like I, I know that there's not, or I'm told that there's not, and I believe that that's true. That's, I spent a lot, lot of time sitting in a hot jungle to get this. You see, I believe that this is true, true, but the momentum and the habit of finding a self in these impulses and thoughts is powerful. You see? So, so <clears throat> when we look closely, however, and there's levels of how we can look closely. So I'm, I'm, I'm really wanting to acknowledge the difference of getting something up here and then getting something here in, in, as a total understanding from direct experience. But when we begin to look at this, we, we can see that there's no solid historical being to be found in any of these impulses or thoughts or emotions because they come and they go. They come and they go, they come and they go, they come and they go. You see? And so the thought that I'm so powerfully invested in one moment disappears in the next. And then there's a new thought that comes along that I'm powerfully invested in as well. Not always, but <laughs> a good part of the time. So no matter how hard or how hard we try to convince ourselves that we're really there in these experiences of thinking and feeling and so on and so forth, we're really not. There's just no self there to be found. So this practice of self-acceptance also leads to the insight that all of our mind states, all of them, are undependable and radically impermanent. So what this does is it helps us to understand the truth of impermanence. It helps us to see that that, that which we think is stable is subject to constant change. So every thought that we have is replaced by another thought. Every sensation that we have is replaced by another sensation. Every belief that we have eventually loosens or, or is forgotten and is replaced by a new belief. See, nothing is stable. And no matter how hard we try to make it stable, um, we're just fooling ourselves. So, as we begin to cultivate this ability to maintain a focus on our mind states, as we begin to be able to see what they are and stay with them for a while, so there's happy, <laughs> positive mind states and unhappy, negative mind states, and as we're able to just see these mind states, these, and these are things below the thinking and emotions. They're... they're the, they can be discovered in attitudes. Like an attitude might be an underlying tendency towards worry or anxiousness or 
those kinds of things. That's what I'm referring to as a mind state here. And these are actually called dhammas. And uh, we begin to notice that they all finally cease. All dhammas finally cease. So everything that comes to us, or everything that arises in our experience, comes to an end. It all finally ceases. And when these things end, this is important, and this is actually good news. When these things end, they don't usually end abruptly. They don't usually just stop. We see that they might end, and then they just stop. They, they kind of fade away gradually. They unravel. So when we're angry and we see that we're angry, the seeing of the anger doesn't make this anger just suddenly stop. But if we can be with it, we can begin to see that it gradually loosens, it unravels, that un, you know, it, it comes apart. And, and it will cease. And it's in the direct seeing that this, this is allowed to, to unfold for us. And the same is true of, of dhammas as they arise in our experience. They don't just suddenly arise out of nowhere. Usually they don't. They don't just arise out of nowhere. We begin to see that they come together. That is, they're compounded um, from causes and conditions. And causes and conditions could be things like our likes and our dislikes and uh, the kinds of things that we believe in and hold on to, you know, as uh, who we are. And when we, when we look at things like that, we begin to see that this is one way of describing dependent arising. This is one way of describing it. This is how things get compounded, and there's a cause and a condition that leads from here to there to the next place. Okay? So this insight actually deepens our understanding of what is called in Pali Anicca, or impermanence, the truth of impermanence. And we begin to grok we begin to really get the fundamental truth of the insubstantiality and dependent arising of all these dhammas. We see that there's nothing substantial in them and that they all just come and go and they're dependent on one another, causes and conditions. So there's two understandings here that I've been talking about. Earlier in my talks, I, I talked about dukkha or suffering. These two understandings today that I'm trying to point to are the understanding of anatta, not-self, and anicca, impermanence. So these two understandings of not-self and impermanence, when we can fully realize these we release the mind from the patterns of habit and attachment 
that are just part of our experience. You see? So when something happens and I think it's me, when I think a thought and I think the thought is me, when I can see that and, and actually get it, I can, I can see the pattern of how I get attached and it begins to gradually loosen my tendency to do that or our tendency to do that. So bringing it down to, to you know, the very practical level, this is how you can begin to sort of practice with these insights to embody them and to own them as your own so that they're not just lofty or heady intellectual pursuits. So this kind of self-expression that keeps the heart space or the heart mind that I was talking about earlier in the thing open and in in touch is this, this expresses as equanimity. And it allows us it allows us to investigate honestly, to honestly investigate our experience, to look at our experience as it truly is, and not to just cherry pick what we like and dismiss what we don't like. So it supports the kind of trust that allows us to to go through what Ever we're going through, whether it's easy or difficult, good or bad, or whatever judgment we put on it, it allows us to see that it arises due to these changing causes and conditions that are just part of our experience and are going to be until we're liberated beings, I suppose. Things always change. That's just an undeniable truth. Has, every, has anyone in the room ever had an experience that never has changed? Or had any unchanging experience? So if we can learn to accept this, we can... Re- we can begin to release our mistaken belief that there's a self to be found in any of these changing conditions. Now, this is a practice. This doesn't happen just because you read it in a book or somebody says it. It is a practice, you see. But it's a practice that people have been undertaking that people have undertaken for thousands of years because it works. You know, it does lead to freedom. So I would encourage you to at least consider it and see what it's like in your personal experience. Because when we begin to look at at our life in this way, we can begin to take responsibility for the causes and conditions that our mind encourages in this present moment experience. You see? So 
as we meet our experience, we can either choose what's going to lead out of suffering or we can default and react in a way that leads us deeper down the rabbit hole. So we can take responsibility for what's going on in our present moment experience without drowning in regrets about mistakes or errors that we made in the past. So we can allow ourselves to be a friend to ourselves. Does that make sense? And I want to just finish this talk by saying that I believe that the fruit of self-acceptance found in the spaciousness is found in the spaciousness, the freedom, and the stillness of equanimity. I think that's something worth considering. So self-acceptance in this context is not accepting some abiding self, but accepting the truth of our experience as we investigate it and have insight into what's going on. And we see that changing conditions uh, allow us to have some sort of moment-to-moment contact with the truth of impermanence and, um, and that because things change, there's no self to be found anywhere. So to be able to experience that uh, requires a stillness of heart and a stability of mind. So those are my thoughts for today. And we have a few minutes left So I'd like to invite any questions. Thank you, Gail. And thank you all, too, for your attention. I hope it was clear. Thank you, Robert. Um, When you, when you, I'm looking for a kind of a help in the stuck point. I get in and, and it was um, it came up in my mind when you said um, that you saw that you um, didn't have the direct experience, you just had the thought. Do you remember saying that? Mm-hmm. And where I get stuck is is a feeling that comes in there of uh, and I <laughs> I can see this is just more stuff to explore but it, mm-hmm. but it's a it's a sticky point um, because I get discouraged then mm-hmm. um, I you know and and I I don't quite know where to go from there and I tend to go go back into some sure. Yeah, so, so I was wondering if you had any more to offer along those Well, um, it is a practice, and the discouragement is, is this mental activity that I was referring to. Yeah. These things are patterns that arise for you and for many other people. Yeah. This discouragement or this 
whatever, however you're describing it, and, and to recognize intellectually that that's what's happening doesn't necessarily free you from that in the moment, but to, to get that intellectually and to allow it and to allow it to sort of flower on its own right. loosens the tendency to go there. Okay. So it doesn't happen immediately. The anger doesn't go away immediately or the discouragement doesn't go away immediately, but in the seeing and, and being patient and allowing, the mm. allowing and the acceptance, the not rejecting that allows a kind of it's 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 not a kind of it is mm-hmm. uh, it's an equanimous way of being with your experience it's also a, it's also an expression of compassion so <clears throat> another way to approach something like that is to see the suffering and the stress that's caused by the discouragement and to not turn away from that, but to meet yeah. that with, not to abandon yourself at that point, but right. to meet that with kindness. Yeah. That's an expression of the, of the heart. That's an expression of kindness. Okay. I don't know, does that help? I, that helps. Yeah, it really does. Okay. Yeah, thank There's you. a question behind you. Um, I think I understand most of this talk, but there's still... A paradox I haven't quite resolved. You, you said that we need an equanimity which falls a stillness of heart. I, <clears throat> would you repeat that? I didn't quite okay. hear that. There's something I'm st- okay. still a little unclear about, and that is okay. that you, you say we need an equanimity, equanimity which involves a stillness of heart and a stability of mind. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you said there is no st- stability. There is no stable self. Mm-hmm. And um, so it, it's almost as if we're, we're trying to find a, a stillness and stability through an awareness of a lack of stability. And it's... Okay, so, so what I said was there's no abiding self. Right. I didn't say there's no stability. Oh, okay. You see, <clears throat> so there is a there is stability. You can you can see that in any moment that you feel grounded, and you feel balanced. That's a a, a state of stability. But <clears throat> to think that you are stable <clears throat> is inherently. a mistake. Oh, inherently, right? Yeah, inherently stable, <clears throat> or that there's some self in that stability. Now. Oh, okay. Now, by looking at that <clears throat> and thinking, oh, I'm a stable, now I've nailed st- stability, right. I've got it. That's where we spin off, you see? Right, okay. So, <clears throat> so to be with the truth of our experience is really, um, it's really very practical. It's very practical and it's immediately applicable to our, to our life because it allows us a choice of what we're going to do with the changing conditions that are arising in the present moment, you know. And for a lot, for a lot of us, um, you know, we really get stuck with the past. We really regret things in the past. We, we beat ourselves up, and then we think that it's always going to be that way, and so on and so forth. So this kind of 
attending to what's going on really is a path of liberation. And, and every time there's a release, every time you experience a release, notice it. Don't let it go unnoticed. Notice what it feels like when you have this sense of freedom. Because <clears throat> this creates familiarity with a new way of being, so to speak. You can default to what it's like to live from a place of, you know, appreciation, gladness, and generosity, rather than constantly being guarded and defended and, and, and so on, and, and stressed out. So, did that... Yeah, I, I think okay. so. I, okay, I sort great. of understand it intuitively. I don't know how to explain it to anybody well, else. Well, that's but. what I'm saying. Don't, don't, don't uh, you know, we can understand on many different levels. And it's okay to, you know, to get it on one level and then to know that you really haven't gotten it on another level. But to fool yourself and think that you've got it on all levels, that can be, a, <laughs> that can be problematic. So... So I, 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 uh, I say rejoice in being exactly who you are, accept who you are, be kind to who you are, love who you are, and appreciate that, you know, it's really precious that you can know yourself on so many different levels. There are, just imagine if you didn't know that you were happy or you didn't know that you were sad. <laughs> the knowing of these states is something to celebrate. So, I thank you all for your kind attention. It's been a real joy to be here with all of you for the last four weeks. And, and I hope it's been a useful um, series for you. Thank you.